Yes, uh, so I'm from Abbotsford, uh, married to my wife. Uh, we've been married for about five years, and um, it's funny that Glenn said that I was the, the taller one on stage, because that's not often the case. I have three younger brothers who are all taller than me, and significantly so, and uh, so that was nice. I got to acknowledge that, yes, I still have some height somewhere. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 63 this morning. Uh, and so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, but before we jump into the text, just a little bit of a, a background on David who writes this psalm. So David was a shepherd boy of a family uh, with no real status in, in Israel. And as he was growing up, he was singled out by God to become the next king of Israel. And so throughout his life, he's given opportunities to show that God has anointed him, right? So he's got this battle with Goliath where he defeats this giant in, the, in the, uh, a war against the Philistines. And then as he serves with Saul in his court, he is then anointed again. And Saul sees that God's hand is upon him and wants to kill David. And so David rises through these ranks, eventually becomes king of Israel, and has God expand the kingdom so that David reigns in relative peace until a rather significant moment in David's life where he sins against God and against the people around him. He commits adultery with one of his commander's wives, and as he does this, he then has this man murdered. And ever since that moment in David's life, things in his kingdom go from good to bad to worse. And David goes through periods of of suffering and trials, and it is during one of those trials where David writes this psalm, and the immediate context of this psalm is that David, one of David's sons, Absalom, has gathered around a group of people and has basically said to his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead because I want to be king. And so he has a coup d'etat and kicks David out of the kingdom, and David is now on the run in the wilderness in Judah, in the middle of a desert with the few people that are loyal to him still, that haven't, and his son hasn't been able to kill him. And in this moment, he writes this psalm. And so as we jump into this psalm, we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see that we seek God, that we remember God, and that we trust God. So, Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with rich and with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in you the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword." They shall be the portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So David opens this psalm, and the first thing that he encourages us to do is to seek God. 
And he makes two strong declarations at the beginning of this psalm. He says, oh God, you are my God. David says that God is his God. There's a, there's a personalness to this relationship. God is not some spiritual power somewhere out in the universe for David. There is a realness to God. There is a personalness to God. There is an actual person to be known. This is why we can have a relationship with God. And so David says, you are my God. And this goes both ways. Not only does David know God, but God knows David. God knows David intimately because he is his God. And so for us as people who have chosen to follow God, we can know that God knows us in the midst of a wilderness. Like David was going through a wilderness, God knew him and was with him. As we go through deserts, as we go through wildernesses, God is still there. He knows us. He is with us. He is our God. So I want to encourage us. We can know God because he is our God. And the second declaration that David makes is he says, earnestly I seek you. So he, he has a personal relationship with God, but then he says, earnestly, I seek you. This God that I know that, that is my God, I seek you. I pursue you. This, this word that, that is translated earnestly in the ESV can also be translated early. Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on this, actually has this. He says, early, I seek you. And both of those words, early and earnestly, are actually kind of what is, David is getting at here. We have the same kind of language in, in English. We say the early bird gets the worm. And we don't just mean that the bird that gets up early gets the worm. It's the bird that gets up early and then gets after it. That's, that goes to work pursuing the worm. So it's early and earnestly. There is no half-hearted seeking that David is talking about. It is earnestly I seek my God. So is that the kind of, of seeking that we have of God? Like in the midst of a wilderness, is that what we are seeking, is to know God? And then the question you should be asking is, okay, if, if yes, my heart wants to seek God, how do I go about that? How is it that I can find God? How can I seek God? Where is he to be found? And David continues, he says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. See, David, even though he's in the wilderness, remembers a time where he was able to go and see God where he had promised to make himself known to his people. He says, the sanctuary, and David here is probably referring to the tabernacle. Where when God had brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, he promised that he would meet with his people And he gave them instructions on a tent to be built. And he said, I will meet with my people here. And so David reflects back on that time where he was able to go to the sanctuary and behold God's power and his glory. So David goes and looks for God where he may be found. And so for us, where can we find God? Well, the first place that we can find God is that 
Paul says in Romans 1 verse 19 that we can find God in creation. Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For God's divine attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And David even declares in Psalm 19, he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So the first places that we can begin to seek God is actually to look out at the world God has made and know that God is glorious, that he is majestic, and that he is God. I mean, living in Squamish, I, I don't live here, I live in Abbotsford, um, and so drive up here every once in a while for work or for vacations with just day trips with my wife. And when I come into this, this valley down by the ocean, this little inlet here, and you come into to Squamish and you've got the chief on your right-hand side, and as you drive through the valley, the mountains, and you look at this created world that God has made, and it screams that there is a glorious creator. We know that God is majestic. As we were driving up this morning, my wife and I was looking out at the mountains and just the, the sprawling nature of these mountains and that how could this be except for that God created it? And the one that who made this must be great. One of the, my favorite experiences um, is to, at night, stand in a clear sky underneath the stars and just look up. And I feel this big. And if you've stood under a clear sky at night looking up at the stars, you've probably felt something like that as well. And that is the creation declaring the majesty of God saying, We do not exist by accident, but God spoke us into existence, and what you see is the result of this creator. Stand in awe of his majesty. So the the first place that we begin to seek God is just to look out at the world God has made. But God hasn't just given us creation. He's also revealed himself in Scripture. God has revealed his character and his goodness throughout history as it has been recorded in this book. From Genesis through Revelation, as we study, as we read, we begin to know what God is like. In Exodus, as Moses is is meeting with God, he's getting the instructions for the people. Moses asks, okay, God, I want to know, I want to see your glory. I want to see who you are. And God says, well, you can't, you can't see me with your eyes, so I'll, I'll put you in a rock, and I will pass by you. And as God passes by Moses, he declares himself to Moses. And this is what God says about himself to Moses. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God declares that He is merciful and gracious. He's abounding in love and faithfulness, but He's also just. He will also hold the guilty accountable. As uh, at Northview, the, the church I attend back home in Abbotsford, we have a, a reading plan that we've been going through this year. And Oh, perfect, thanks. This, uh, this, excuse me. this last uh, month, we've been going through the books of First and Second Kings, which tells the history of the kings of Israel after the reign of David. And as you read this history, you see kings that are either somewhat faithful to God, really faithful to God, or completely wicked and rejecting God. And that as you read this history, you see this character of God that he just declares to Moses worked out with his people. There are times where God is gracious, where he has mercy on a wicked people and a wicked kingdom when he should judge them, but he chooses grace. And there are times where After warning, after warning, after warning of coming judgment, God, in fact, does bring judgment on the people and removes them from the land of Israel. And yet there are also times where he has warned and warned and warned. And then this one last king, with this last warning, he actually repents. And so God withholds his judgment. And so we see God's gracious and merciful character on display. And yet we also see that he will not clear those that continue in rebellion against him. So we see that God reveals himself through the history of Scripture, through his interaction with the people of Israel. And lastly, we see that God reveals himself in the person of Jesus. Jesus comes to earth as God's representation, his revelation of himself. In Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27 Jesus says this, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So Jesus' mission while He was on earth was to reveal the Father to us. So if we want to know what Jesus or what what God looks like, we need to look to Jesus. We need to look at who Jesus is, what His character was, how He interacted with people, and we will see God. Matthew eleven twenty nine. we see part of this character. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, Jesus reveals that God is the kind of God who is gentle and lowly and who gives us rest. Who cares for his people. There's this great little book and I've recently read, it focuses on this very verse. It's called Gentle and Lowly. It's by Dane Ortland. And if you want to learn what God's heart is for his people, go and read this book. It's a great, great explanation of God's character. And so we earnestly seek God with the promise that when we earnestly seek God with everything that we have, God will be found by us. In in Jeremiah, as the prophet Jeremiah is writing a letter to the people in exile in Babylon, he says that 
you will seek me and find me. God says this to his people. When you seek me with all your heart. See, God promises that when we pursue him, when we go after him, when we seek him in the wilderness, we will find him. It's a promise that we can rest on. It doesn't mean that he's going to be found easily or right away, but we keep on it. We earnestly pursue and seek. So we seek God, but we also remember God. David continues in his psalm, verse 5, he says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my stomach will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. So David has talked about how he longs for God, how he thirsts for God as though he's in the middle of the wilderness. And then in this next section, he says that I will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Imagine you have just finished a fantastic meal and you, as you were eating this food, it was amazing, it was delicious, it was seasoned perfectly, and you finish and you sit in your living room or on the way home from this restaurant and you say, I am satisfied. That was, that was a good meal. And David says that kind of satisfaction is ours in God when, when we remember God and when we meditate on Him. A quick note on meditation. When, whenever you see Scripture talking about meditating on God, this is not losing yourself through the, the repetition of, of phrases or words. This is meditation in, in Scripture, and as Christians, is this recalling and bringing to mind truths about God or passages of, of Scripture so that we may chew on them, meditate on them, roll them over in our minds, and then apply them to our lives. And so what David here is calling for is a remembering of God. In those quiet moments, notice, notice the time that David is saying that he remembers God. When he's upon his bed, so at night, when sleep escapes him, and he meditates on God in the watches of the night, So when David's in the wilderness fleeing from those that want to kill him, with this group of people, they would have set people out to be watchers in the night, to look for thieves, for robbers, for those that wanted to destroy them. And they would have been out in the night, in the quiet, with only their thoughts. And it is in these moments that David says that we are to meditate on God, that we are to remember him. Because when we do those things, God will satisfy our souls. So what is it that we remember? Well, for David, David could look back and remember all of the works that God had done even in his own life. How God had empowered him to defeat Goliath. How God had been with him as he was on the trajectory to becoming king. How God had given David the kingdom. And how God had been 
gracious in forgiving David in the moments of his sin, David could look back on all those and remember God. David could even look back further than that and look back on what God had done for his people in bringing them out of slavery, out of Egypt, into the wilderness, and then through the wilderness into the promised land. And so David is saying, remember, I will remember those things. I will meditate on God and how he has done that. So for us, what can we remember? Well, we can remember those moments where God has been particularly sweet, where he has revealed himself to our hearts, where he has opened our eyes to see the truth of his gospel and recognize that that was an act of God and his mercy and his love. We can look back at moments where God had maybe made his presence felt during times of suffering or how he had brought us through times of suffering to new and wonderful pictures of who he is. And so we, we need to make little moments where we can recognize what God has done. Right? There's this uh, song, Come Thou Fount. And in one of the verses it says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. And that's a line that, that comes from um, the Old Testament where Samuel sets up a stone called Ebenezer. And it's basically a stone of remembering where God has shown up for the people of Israel. So let's take those little moments and mark them either in our minds or in our journals or whatever it may be so that when we are alone with our thoughts, we can remember how God has been faithful. But one of the other ways that we remember, and we're actually going to do it this morning, is through communion. When Jesus was right before he was about to go to the cross, He sits down with his disciples and basically institutes this ordinance for the church. And he says that we are to do this in what? In remembrance of him. That we take the bread and drink the cup as we remember what Christ has done. And so we ought to remember, not just that Christ died, but what is it that he did while he was here? He came The God who spoke the stars into existence came as a baby who couldn't even speak. And then he lived his life in perfect obedience to God, in perfect submission to God. And then, even though he didn't deserve it, willingly goes and takes our place as enemies of God, receives our judgment, is broken, his blood is shed, for us, that we may, in earnest, actually seek God and into His presence walk. And so we remember God through our lives and in what He's done in Christ. In the quietness of the night, Instead of pulling up the phone, instead of putting the iPad games on, the laptops on, take a moment, remember, and let God satisfy your soul.
David concludes his song with trust God. Verse 8, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down, down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. David begins this section by saying, My soul clings to you, God. In the same way that a child will cling to their parent's leg in the grocery store. This is how David will cling to God because God is the one who upholds David. We don't cling like that to somebody who's weaker than us. We cling to someone like that because there's protection there. There's security there. There's trust there. And as David is thinking about clinging to God and trusting God, he now turns his attention to, okay, God, what are you going to do in the future? Right now I'm in this wilderness, but God, what are you going to do? And David in verse 9 and 10 says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. So David looks to the future and he sees God working salvation. Right? That, that line in verse 11, the king shall rejoice in God, is showing that David sees God as the one who's working these things out because he's going to rejoice in God doing this. And what is it that, that God's doing? God is removing David's enemies. He's He's taking them away so that David can regain his throne, right? He says, the king shall rejoice in God. David doesn't see himself not being king. David, David sees God restoring him to the kingdom. And he has this prophetic hope that God will do this. And so he trusts God for it. So as David looks to his future and trusts God with his future... What kind of hope do we have now, right? David was writing about having his kingdom restored to him, but what is the future that God has promised us? Well, there's a few things. The first is that God has promised that our future is glorious. In Romans 8, Paul, as he is writing about the trajectory of every person who puts their faith in Christ, he says, those that God foreknew, God called. Those he called, he predestined. Those he predestined, he justified. And those he justified, he what? He glorifies. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that we will be given new bodies. That we will be raised to new life with new and glorious bodies that match the body that Christ was raised with. Our future is glorious. Right? Tell us like to say our, what is it, our the, I don't remember. The future is bright. Friendly. Friendly. The future is friendly. Yes, for those in Christ it is. Our future is also triumphant. In the same way that David sees his enemies defeated, we will also see our enemies defeated. But our enemies aren't of flesh and blood. Paul, throughout the New Testament, refers to our enemies as those principalities and powers that are opposed to Christ. 
We talk about Satan's sin and death. And when we look to Revelation, we see that Christ will return and Satan's sin and death will be defeated. And we will no longer have those that seek to destroy us, that seek to enslave us, that seek to oppress us. Because Christ will have saved us, he will have defeated our enemies, and we will walk in triumphant victory. And lastly, our future is secure. Our future is secure because Jesus became like one of us and took our place. And then when he rose again, he promised that any who put their trust in him would be made like him. And he guaranteed it by rising from the dead. And Paul also, in Ephesians, talks about how the Holy Spirit is a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is a down payment, a deposit that we will receive the full inheritance that God has promised us. That we will receive that glorious and triumphant future. It is secure. There's nothing that can take it from us. So if if that's our future, what kind of person ought we be? How ought we live in this moment? Um, There's a preacher story that I've heard and I'll share it now. So imagine, imagine that you are going through your life, your, your day-to-day life, you work a job, you're just making ends meet, you've got a little money saved away, but as you're going about your life, you get a phone call from this lawyer's office and you look at it and you're like, that's odd, I don't, I don't need a lawyer, but I guess I'll answer the phone. So you pick up the phone and the lawyer says, I, I need you to come to my office um, I've got some news for you. And so you walk into the lawyer's office a couple days later, and as you're sitting in this boardroom, lawyer walks in, he's got a file in his hand, opens it up, and as he begins to read it, you begin to realize that this lawyer is telling you that somehow you have inherited $50 million. And it is yours. There's no one else that has claim to this. You have inherited $50 million. You who live in your house with your beater car that you take to and from work have now inherited $50 million. But the lawyer says, hey, look, it's going to take some time to get all of this settled. We've got to sell off a few things. We've got to, all the fees have to go through. We have to make sure all the paperwork's done right. It's going to take some time. I don't know how much time, but it's going to take some time. But it's yours. It's there. It's a guarantee. So you walk out of the lawyer's office and you get into your car and you go to turn the, the ignition over, and like so many times before, it doesn't start, and it doesn't start. And then finally it starts, and instead, this, instead of begrudging how awful your car is, all of a sudden it's like, well, that's not that big of a deal. I got $50 million coming. And you get home, and you walk through your front door, and doesn't open quite right because of the way everything is settled. The door handle's a little loose. And instead, this time of hanging your head and sighing and knowing it's got to get fixed, you walk through the door with a big smile on your face. You hardly even notice that it doesn't open right. You don't even notice that the handle's loose. Because you've got this future that you're looking to. 
So for us, in this life, when we know that our future is glorious, that it is triumphant, and that it is secure, how do we look at the things that we are going through? I, I, I don't mean to demean anything that you may be going through, but look at what Paul, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. This is, I, I remind you, this is a man who was beaten to near death, who was imprisoned multiple, multiple times, who was hungry, who had friends desert him, who was shipwrecked. And in 2 Corinthians 4, he talks about the light and momentary afflictions of this life in light of the glorious future that we have. So as we go through hard things, as we walk through affliction, as we walk through suffering, yes, we grieve, but we grieve as people who know the future. And so we grieve and yet can still rejoice. So let's be people who remember and trust God with our future. So we seek God, we remember God, and we trust God. And some of you, as we've been going through this, you're probably like, but he's, there's a bunch of things that he's not touched on. And they're all the same thing. So I'm going to read some of these to you. Verse 3. Because, of your steadfa- because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Verse 5. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Verse 7. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. In verse 11. The king will rejoice in God and all who swear by him will exalt. Look, as we seek God, as we remember God, and as we trust God, the result is praise of God. It is joyful and it is resilient praise. Remember, David is writing this song in the midst of the wilderness. And he's saying, I will sing for joy. So let us be people who sing for joy, not because it's some easy platitude to say, but because we have remembered God. Because we have trusted God, because we seek God and He satisfies our souls. Let us praise, let us rejoice, and let Him satisfy our deepest needs. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this word, this reminder that you are glorious, that you are good, and that we are to seek you, that we are to remember you, and that we can trust you. And that, Father, as we do these things, ultimately, we will praise you. So, Father, would you make yourself known to us when we seek you? Would you cause us to remember you? And ultimately, God, as we do these things, would you cause our trust in you to be strengthened? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.